Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hey, everyone. Good to have you here. And I'm glad that you showed up. Now, today we are going to have another dark episode. Now, this one is for the guys today. And ladies, we're going to have some very valuable information for you, for the men in your life that you love, your spouse, your father, your son, your brother, your cousin, your grandfather, your friend. We're talking about sexual trauma in males. Now, I'd like to reiterate that my podcast is not a ladies podcast. Although a lot of women listen to my podcast and abuse happens frequently to women, obviously, but I serve male and female survivors on this podcast. And I have male and female guests, as you already know, if you've listened to my show for any length of time. Now, the reason why I like to have male and female topics on this show is because there aren't many resources out there for men. And some people think, well, men don't suffer any kind of abuse or trauma. But I assure you that they do. Being in advocacy, I've heard so many stories from so many men even some men that I knew personally, who have suffered atrocities. Now, supposedly the statistics are 60% women and 40% men that have been victims of some form of abuse in their lifetime. Now, I think that those numbers are much higher because a lot of men don't report their abuse. We're especially going to talk about boys today. The majority of sexual abuse happens during childhood. You know, children are more compliant. They don't know what's going on, or they don't know that this isn't normal. They are afraid to tell anybody about it because they're ashamed. And if they do tell anybody, then they are usually very afraid because they are threatened. Well, if you tell anybody else, then here are the consequences. So our guest today is Dr. Kelly Palfi, and she's worked in adult youth corrections, and she was also an RCMP in Canada. RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. She's specialized in sex crimes as a subject matter expert. She's done some doctoral research 
on the reasons why males don't report abuse. She is now a trauma therapist and an author of the book, Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Abuse. So I think you will learn a lot from this episode. She is very knowledgeable about her subject matter. So invite the men in your life to come listen to this podcast or pass it on to a friend. So here is my conversation with Dr. Kelly Palfi. All right, please welcome Dr. Kelly Palfi to the show. Thank you so much for taking time out to come on to the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Diana. Thank you for having me. So what's the weather like over there? Oh, I think today was up around plus 12. Yeah, not <laughs> Fahrenheit? Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm never remembering which is which, to be honest. Uh, yes, Fahrenheit. Yeah. It's, it's about 75 degrees Fahrenheit here in Phoenix. So. Wow, that sounds lovely. <laughs> it is. It's, it's gorgeous outside until the 110 degree heat will will come soon. But uh, yeah, hailing all the way from Alberta. Good to have you. So um, just uh, give our listeners a little snapshot of uh, who you are and what you do. Okay, so I am a registered psychologist. Um, I work primarily with male survivors of sexual abuse and with first responders. And I am a former first responder myself. So prior to becoming a psychologist, I did 13 and a half years of active duty with the RCMP, which is kind of the equivalent of the American FBI, but in Canada. Wow. Yeah. And it's encouraging to have a, a fellow female advocate for male sexual abuse survivors. There's mm -hmm. so few resources out there for men. Mm -hmm. So what inspired you to write about uh, this topic, write a book about it? Well, it's, it's actually a bit of a story. It's kind of my journey. Um, it started, I, like I mentioned, I was, sorry, I was an RCMP officer for 13 and a half years. And for the better part of the last five years, I worked in a unit called the Integrated Child Sexual Exploitation Unit, which was part of the Behavioral Sciences Unit. And um, we originally formed this unit in response to um, a plethora of cases that were presented to us from the Americans. Um, the US Postal Service had uh, noticed a bunch of suspicious packages. They did a joint investigation with the Department of Homeland Security and they found that the packages contained illicit images of children that had been purchased via credit card. Mm. So um, yeah, and so they figured out that a lot of these offenders had addresses in Canada. So they, I want to say they sent us about 350 known of people, known offenders that were purchasing child pornographic images. So our unit was established to respond to that. Uh, we began investigating these cases and this was in 2002, 2003, which was when Canada passed legislation saying that um, any Canadian that traveled abroad for the purposes of um, exploiting a child could be charged as if they were in Canada. So we were getting some evidence of that as well um, and other crimes, obviously. Um, so. We, um, we began investigating that and in the process of uh, the training that I uh, was subject to, they were training me to be a subject matter ex expert. I sat in on a lecture from Sheldon Kennedy, who is a former pro hockey player. And he discussed the abuse that he endured by his coach. And um, 
So uh, he talked about the reasons why he didn't talk about his abuse. Things like he'd grown up in poverty and um, his pro hockey career was literally lifting his family out of poverty. Um, his parents and everybody were so proud of him. Um, he knew he had the skill set to make it pro, but he, you know, also kind of relied on his coach to get him there. So um, all of these things were, were reasons why he didn't disclose. So he was talking about, you know, his parents were super proud of him and he didn't want to disappoint them. And then he also talked about um, just just feeling like other parents, like his teammates' parents knew about it, but did nothing, you know, because they didn't want to like risk their own children not making it to the big leagues. So um, that really broke my heart to mm -hmm. think that people might know that this was going on and do nothing. And he talked about um, like the process of, he said, he described it as being like living a double life. He said, you know, on one hand, I'm in this pro hockey player. I'm like, everybody's, you know, hockey icon. And then on the other hand, he was being sexually abused. So um, ironically, I kind of related to that small piece of it, the double life part, because mm -hmm. I was working in major crimes at the time on the, at the top of my career game in my own mind. And I was also being bullied. So, I, you know, I mean, I would at work pretend to be confident and do my job and then go home and bawl my eyes out all the time. Right. Like I was living a double life for sure. So um, there was that piece that, you know, really made me kind of just take notice, honestly. And fast forward, I lost my career to bullying. And um, honestly, it's what brought me to my knees in the first instance, right? Because I really wanted something to be passionate about career-wise. And I was say it's like God reminded me of this lecture that I'd been to and how it had broke my heart and how, you know, this awareness that there was just so few resources for men out there. And I, like, I was, you know, I lost my career to bullying, right? So I was, I was clinically depressed and it was like, you know, thinking that I could make a difference in this area, just like just a little light turned on inside of me. And the more I fed that, the more the light lit up, right? So I just pursued it. And when I, you know, I went back to school, I was doing my master's when, when I ended up, I was already doing my master's when I left my policing career. I originally wanted to be a criminal profiler. So I had started my master's and when my career fell apart, I was like, okay, well maybe I'll be a psychologist. <laughs> Never intended to be. Um, but I just decided to do my doctoral research investigating you know to see if there were more reasons that other boys and men had about you know why they didn't come forward like you know intending to hopefully shine some light in this area and to and to you know create more discussions and awareness and just resources for male survivors yeah absolutely mm -hmm. i did know personally in fact i dated a guy that was was raped by his mother and raped by his wife wow. and up till that point i didn't I didn't know that women were abusers and that men could be raped. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, that would also be a big motivation for me, too, because, you know, here I am working in the behavioral sciences unit and we are supposed to be the experts. And one of my supervisors, who was a male, said to me, don't worry about the boys. Like we had a case out of um, Colombia, the Philippines and Cambodia, and we had something like 95 victims or something. And he said, don't worry about the boys. And I didn't even question it. So it was a bit of conviction too, you know, like why didn't I question that? And, you know, also this sort of piece, like if I'm considered the freaking expert and I don't know this, how little does everybody else know, right? Like it just, 
I, I had worked in corrections mm. prior to becoming a police lady. And the one thing that I really remember from that time was like, why questioning, why are there so many men in prison? Like compared to women, why so many men? And listening to Sheldon Kennedy's lecture, it was like, like I said, the lights kind of went on. I was like, oh my gosh, this is why there are so many men in prison or, or possibly why, right? Because there's no resources, like there's, this is happening and, and they can't talk about it and there's no room in society, there's no supports in society. So yeah, all those were very motivating factors. <laughs> yeah, and my listeners know that I'm you know, involved with Mending the Soul, I do the Mending the Soul healing groups. And let me tell you, we have a waiting list for men. The men have their groups and then the women have their groups separately and we can't train enough uh, facilitators for the men's group because that, mm -hmm. there's such a huge demand. Yeah. Well, what yeah. was it like working in the correctional facilities? What did you discover when you were in there? Well, like I mentioned, like it was, it was actually pretty shocking, right? Like, you know, um, there was men from every socioeconomic status and race in there, you know, I, I, I worked in a youth corrections facility and I also worked in an adult facility. Um, but again, the biggest, the biggest shock for me was like, why are there so many boys and men compared to women? I just rem really remember questioning that. So, you know, just like to see, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these men look like they could have had a lot of potential, but maybe didn't have the proper support or whatever. Right. So yeah, a lot of that too. <laughs> Wow. Did you get to talk to them in the prisons, like hear their stories in the prisons or? Uh, not so much then because I, I was a guard, not a caseworker. Right. But uh, no, I honestly, I can say I really didn't because that wouldn't have been my role and it would have been inappropriate. But during my doctoral research, I interviewed 14 different men about their um, experiences of being abused and then of course I advertise in my private practice that I work with male survivors and I'm posting all the time on my website and on LinkedIn and stuff so I'm pretty easy to find if you're looking for a support for male survivors so I do get quite a few clients that are male survivors and obviously they tell me their stories right yeah we'll definitely talk about you know, your resource for the guys I of course I work with other advocates and we're always looking for more resources to help to help the guys out there. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the men don't report their abuse. Mm -hmm. It's way underreported, as we're finding out. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the men don't report it or disclose their abuse? And Diana, this was the main topic of my research and also the topic of my book, which is on my poster behind me and right behind you too, uh, Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. Um, there's lots of reasons and they are complex and multifaceted and across their entire lifespan. So it kind of depends, um, you know, what stage you're at in asking that question. But overall, I mean, I can go through as many of them as you like, but one of the biggest ones was memory loss. So the mm -hmm. um, traumas are so catastrophic that they literally either forget it, you know, subconsciously or consciously work towards forgetting it. So, um, you know, dissociation or, or just plain old memory loss happens to lots of male and female victims, obviously. And unfortunately, um, we know this that, you know, later on in life when they're in a safe, secure place, um, no longer threatened, then that's when their memories often come back, which is catastrophic, right? I've, in my, my research, I also found two um, males who, who drank 
ex to excess purposely trying to forget it and actually managed to succeed in forgetting it because of how much they drank and for how long mm. so memory loss was a big part um fear of being blamed was another reason you know like why didn't I stop this or I liked my perpetrator before you know before the abuse occurred so obviously it's my fault that kind of thing some for, for a lot of men it was just too hard to discuss like I can't relive that kind of thing right right very very difficult some of them did try to disclose and it didn't go very well like oftentimes when males try to disclose to their friends or whatever they're like it's minimized or they're said oh I wish that happened to me you know I wish my teacher seduced me or you know whatever that kind of thing uh, you know, even in Hollywood, right, there's so many movies where, you know, male sexual abuse is, 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 you know, like is relayed like a coming of age experience or a romance. I mean, it's ludicrous, right? So a lot of the, a lot of my participants were abused by a bio parent. So, you know, there's this fear that if I tell, it'll break up the family, you know, I'll be separated from my brothers and sisters, things could get worse. Mm. Uh, I'm in foster care, you know, I could be abused by somebody I don't know again, right? So some fear that they wouldn't be believed right like this yes. no yeah like we don't talk about this nobody's nobody's gonna believe that this actually happened mm -hmm. um, some of them were really afraid of their perpetrator they didn't they didn't believe that you know if they did disclose that there would be enough sufficient aid to get them out of that situation and then of course they if you know they disclose that their parent abused them and they wind up having to live with that parent still obviously that's a very dangerous situation for them and they feared that yeah a lot of them worried about their own like image right they felt like shame they felt guilt. They felt responsible. Like I mentioned earlier, they, you know, uh, most, most sexual abuse uh, is perpetrated. 90% is perpetrated by someone that the victim knows and loves. Right. So mm -hmm. obviously, yeah, they feel guilty. Like, why didn't I see this? Or, or did I have this written all over my forehead? Is there a reason he picked me? You know, it must be something I did. Self-blame, right? They feel responsible. They, you know, why didn't I stop it sooner? Why did I go back? Right. And we know that all children need attention, right? And if this is the only way they're getting attention, it's understandable why they go back, right? Yeah, that's all they, they know. Now, you talked a lot about that, you know, men should should have consent also. Not every man wants sex all the time. That's the stereotype. Just like women have stereotypes, so do men. The men don't always want sex every waking moment. I don't know why that's it. I guess that's just the culture, the perpetrated, as you say, by Hollywood. But a lot of male abuse in your book, you say, starts in childhood. Mm -hmm. What are the warning signs of abuse that we should be looking for? Diana, are you asking me about like warning signs that a child is being abused or, or warning signs that there's an offender in the midst? That the child is being abused. Let's okay. start with that. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, if a child has an extreme and sudden change in behavior, right? Like, let's say they liked going to daycare normally, and then all of a sudden they're like, I don't want to go. And they're persistent about it, right? Or they say things like, I don't like the games that we play or whatever. And, you know, I mean, obviously, there's no for sure signs. But if you start hearing a child have extreme changes in behavior and saying things like that, uh, it's time to start asking questions like what what kind of games do you play or why don't you want to go that kind of thing or if the child is saying mommy can you stay home with me or don't leave me alone with so and so that kind of thing. Um, children who regress or decompensate go, go backwards like developmentally. That's often mm. a sign of abuse. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
children who all of a sudden develop difficulty falling asleep or having nightmares. Um, conversely, they could be the child falling asleep in class because they're too afraid to sleep at home at night, like nightmares or abuse happening, that kind of thing. Um, children with really low self-esteem, isolating, maybe bullying other kids or being bullied. Um, you know, like I say, there's no telltale signs, but it's definitely time to start asking questions when you see these kinds of behaviors happening. Like if they're the class clown, they could be trying to deflect from the fact that they don't know the information that they're not able to learn. And part of why they can't learn is because they're so distracted by their traumas, you know, like, um, Kids experimenting sexually with other kids, that's a, that's a warning sign for sure. Kids getting urinary tract infections or damage to the anus, obviously that's a big sign. Um, mm -hmm. um, kids like, you know, in my research, uh, one, of the, one of the participants really pointed out to me that he was, like, actually a few of them said like, I was the odd kid, right? Because, you know, they're so dissociated, right? They can't relate to other kids. They can't just come, come down to earth. So their own trauma responses, right? So. Um, they really, um, you know, just cautioned that that could be a big warning sign. So if something seems off or changes in behavior, that's, that's the red flag yeah. to start asking questions. Yeah. And in older kid, in older youth, um, you know, like this sort of chip on their shoulder that just won't go away, like unexplained anger, that kind of thing, you know, I think a lot of people are really quick to write it off as like a, a stage in development, but any extreme changes, yeah. Like, you know, if they go from being, you know, the kid that goes to youth camp or Bible school or whatever to, you know, suddenly dark interests, and there's probably something going on there, right? So sudden and extreme changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you know Jimmy Hinton. He's the, um, the, the guy with the book behind me, The Devil Inside. And mm -hmm. he he's an expert on grooming techniques. Well, he, he calls them testing. But so he was on the show last week and talked about some of the uh, grooming techniques that sex offenders use but let's hear maybe you may have some that that we didn't hear okay Jimmy. okay um well they're they're very deliberate acts that these offenders engage in right which is you know i'm sure he talked about like them winning the trust of the adults in their life right filling a need right um they typically start off with, you know, being very overtly obvious about their intentions, which makes it kind of feel innocuous, right? So, um, you know, telling telling the parent, oh yeah, I want to be a support. This is a good kid, you know. I want to help out, like, you know, just being very overt about it. Um, basically, if anything seems too good to be true, it probably is. That's when you want to start <laughs> asking questions, right? So yeah, so they're obviously, I'm sure you talked about they pay special attention. The the um the the, the physical contact typically starts as non-sexual. They might tickle or play fight or wrestle or something like that, or offer to coach. Um, then the you know um you know obviously sometimes they introduce like masculine principles like you know test them a little bit. I'm sure you talked about that, like testing them by you know having a secret or something like allowing them to smoke or allowing them to look at a magazine or drive a truck or something that's sort of considered a masculine principle that they wouldn't normally be allowed to do at home. And they do that to test to see if the child's going to disclose because it's better to be disclosed on about that than about what they're actually going to do, right? So. Um, they're very deceptively transparent. They, yeah, they, they, you know, like I say, they, they will, you know, be, be very active in the family with the victim and, uh, you know, fill a need, that kind of thing, establish trust. And then, you know, oftentimes in, in older males, they'll ask them what they know about sex, that kind of thing. 
um, assume they know things, or you know, pretend that they assume they know things. Teach them how to masturbate, or offer offer to discuss masturbation with them, and you know, just um, you know, then start start with the sexual touching rather than you know what the what the child originally signed up for. <laughs> yeah, those those things just make my the hair on the back of my neck stand up because you know you you don't realize it that it just it's going on around you. It's very common. And it's could have been happening to the people that you love mm-hmm. growing up. My listeners know that I was uh, molested by a guidance counselor at my school. I was in the eighth grade. And I now looking back, I recognize all those signs of, well, yeah, he gave me his phone number to call him when I needed to talk. And it was just stupid stuff about, you know growing pains in my mom and this that and the other and you know but the door to his office was always locked um it, they didn't have windows in this office it was like a little mm-hmm. bigger than a bathroom mm-hmm. and he was always talking to talking to the kids and telling them how how nice they looked and you know, he looked like that guy from uh, Ernest goes to camp you know what i mean Vern but he Definitely used these these techniques. And when I was in his office, um, I was sitting in a beanbag chair. That's what he had in the office. And then he was crouched down, squatting in front of me, and he had his hands on my knees. Mm-hmm. And now I know he was looking at my crotch and seeing what I would do if he was sitting there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to uh, the water park for a field trip. And um, we were dropped off at the school to get our parents to pick us up and he was he was there and he wanted to see all everybody's swimsuits and so we were all showing showing them our swimsuits because we had cover-ups on well everybody got picked up except me and I was left behind and he took me in his office and I had he said well show me your swimsuit and so I just did it really quick you know just lifted up my shirt and and he was he was crouched on the floor, and I was sitting in a regular chair right next to the door. And he all of a sudden put his hand on my crotch, and then pulled over my my bathing suit, the crotch of my bathing suit, to touch touch my crotch. And I pushed his hand away, and he did it again. And then I immediately stood up and and I said, I have to go, because I knew I knew what he was doing was. Yeah. was wrong and really shocking but I trusted him so much mm-hmm. and I I left and I got home I don't know if I walked home or if I got a ride home I don't even remember my mother knew right away she's like what's wrong and I told her what happened and and I knew the reason why we reported is I knew he was probably abusing other kids if he was abusing me mm-hmm. that's always how it happens it's never just one kid right And I think I healed from that because my parents believed me, the school Mm -hmm. believed me, the police believed me, and it was my word against his because I named a bunch of kids that were always around his office, Mm -hmm. but they wouldn't testify against him. Well, Diane, that's a really, that's a really important part, right? Yep. People often create alibis that they do not abuse, right? Kids, right. kids treat fantastically and don't even ever touch because those kids will adamantly swear on the Bible that they did nothing, which they didn't, right? So they'll, they'll, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll 
cut one from the pack, isolate them, get them alone in a room like that or overnight or changing in front of them or inspecting bathing suits, same thing, right? One of the guys in my book, like, you know, he asked the kid to stay after basketball camp to break down camp, right? So now he's out in the middle of the nowhere with them, 60 kilometers out in the bush with them without no without a cell phone. This is, you know, before cell phones and stuff, right? So, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. And I'm glad that you got the support that you needed, though, right? And And that can make all the difference to a victim. Oh, right? yeah. I know that my situation was was pretty rare that everybody believed my story. I, I, I wasn't a troublemaker kid. I never was known for lying. You know, he got away with it. He he got to keep his job. Now, thank God I went off to high school and I left, you know, the middle school. But I feel so bad for the kids that were left behind at that school that are probably victims today. It could have gotten a lot worse than him touching my crotch, you know. I, you know, I'm very grateful that, that I was able to escape, but, um, yeah, the typical grooming techniques, um, we just have to pay attention and, and look well, around what's going on around us. Absolutely. And Diana, you were, I read, I read a book called, um, Predators, Pedophiles, Rapists, and Other Sex Offenders by Dr. Anna Salteri you might have it there. Um, and she talks about how, she was a prison psychologist and she interviewed all these psychopathic sex offenders and learned that they often will target the child in school who already has the history of lying, right? Because what's one more lie, right? Like they're not going to be believed. So, mm. yeah. So what are some specific steps that, that men or even young boys can do to start the process of healing if if they come to that point well hey i need some help well i think seeking help right um one of my participants in my book said you know i mean in today's day and age find someone that will believe you and if you tell the if the person you tell doesn't believe you find someone else because there are people that will believe you now right so yeah seek support there there's agencies obviously across canada and the u.s specifically for men not a ton of them but there are some so yeah uh, I think that would be the the beginning, you know, and do some reading, right? Like, you know, like my book, The Devil Inside, they're all, they're going to be books that are going to describe to the victim what happened. How did, how did this happen? How did you get in this situation? And it's not your fault, right? Like these offenders are specifically targeting, you know, boys of a certain age or girls of a certain age, right? Or both, right? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Everybody knows to um, to contact me and I will set them up with a, a healing group to to be in for we definitely got the ones for the guys and for the girls, people that have gone through this just like just like you and to, you know, mending the soul is a as a partner with a doctor, a partner with a trauma counselor, a partner with a uh, addiction uh, center, et cetera, or a team. And so those are great, great steps. Now for us, what are some ways that we can create a safe space for male, male survivors to come and talk to us, to come forward? How can we encourage them that, hey, I'm a safe person, come and talk to me? Well, Diana, honestly, I think the biggest thing that we can do is exactly what you're doing right now. Talk about it, right? Create awareness, create openness, right? Like if, if I'm working with psychologists or whatever, I will encourage them. Advertise that you work with male survivors too, right? Like agencies that are willing to work with men who have been sexually abused, advertise that, right? Because, you know, 
research shows that boys and men won't talk about things that they don't hear other boys, other people talking about. So if we are talking about it, it makes it a lot safer for them to talk about it. Mm. So just being understanding and mm -hmm. telling them it's not their fault and Absolutely. not being judgmental. Yeah, that's a big sure. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I really am a big advocate of, of helping them understand, you know, that, you know, that it isn't their fault that, you know, even if their body responded or even if they went back, it doesn't mean that they wanted to be abused. They deserve attention and, you know, their body works the way God designed it to work. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, homosexual or whatever, right? It just means. Oh, yes. Cover that because I tell this to my, the people in my group that, they, they feel so ashamed because they they had an orgasm or because they were aroused when they were being raped. Mm -hmm. And I've heard this from both sexes. Um, address that. Why why is it that they that they get a pleasurable response even though they're going through this traumatic event? Well, uh, research on spinal cord injuries has taught us that there's three different types of erections that men can get. And one of them, I believe, is called reflexogenic. So it has nothing to do with mental or emotional stimulation. It's just pure physical stimulation. So um, they learned this because, you know, they've learned that men with spinal cord injuries can still get erections. So, mm. um, yeah, so there, it's, you know, I can't explain it that well, but there is research that shows that it is a completely different system, that it's not. I mean, there's a couple of things that we're talking about then. Boys and men can get erections when they're extremely traumatized. So it's like a bodily response um, to trauma. Um, it's not uncommon for soldiers or combat veterans or whatever to report having had erections during combat. Uh, it's just like the, the adrenaline rush or testosterone rush or whatever that is. But also this idea that there is, the body does have the ability to get aroused and, you know, to the point of ejaculation, even though they're not mentally wanting to be there. Yeah, so that's not proof that they wanted it, quote unquote, which that's probably what they hear. But the other thing is, you know, Diane, I mean, when we're talking about little boys, not adult men too, right? Like this, the abuse typically happens by someone who has won their trust, right? Someone who has, you know, established a place in their heart and they genuinely care for these people. And, you know, the perpetrator will very much work very hard to try and confuse the victim to make it seem as if they're in a romance, right? To seem it, to make it seem as if this is a logical next step. I mean, I'm working with a man whose father did this to him, right? Like he mm -hmm. legit did not understand that his abuse was sexual abuse until he was well into his forties. Then he went, holy crap, you know? Yes. So, they don't yeah. realize it. Like this is why we have age of consent laws, right? Because children are too not mentally mature enough to know what they're consenting to right like a lot of times it doesn't really even bother them so much until they reach puberty or adulthood and they learn the meaning behind sexual activity right right and then of course the women you know the the, the girls and we've we've talked about this with other guests that the girls it's it's bad for them because they're they're made to feel like they're the temptress Mm, for sure. Oh, well, you were dressed a certain way or it's like, okay, really? I was <laughs> dressed a certain way? Um, it's it's appalling. It's like, and we were talking with Jimmy Hinton that you have to be really sick in the head to abuse a child, to have sex with a child. I mean, what is what is wrong with them? Well, I think like kids will experiment with other kids. Kids don't experiment with adults, right? Right. You know, and, and I mean, 
I mean, it could be considered abuse. Like I'm working with a gentleman who is, I've worked with two guys actually right now that are abused by someone younger than them. So their perpetrators were obviously introduced to sexual activities and then engaged in them with their older cousin, right? So, I mean, we could still consider that sexual abuse because they're forcing them into sexual acts, right? Whether or not, excuse me, I'm sure like in most states and provinces that first child would never be charged because they're obviously replicating what's been done to them oftentimes right but yet it's still considered abuse on on the second victim right so um yeah so uh yeah to answer your question i would say probably age and mental intent right like we consider it sexual abuse if the offender is old enough to know what they're doing old enough to be held accountable under the court's system and you know mentally aware of what they're doing so children playing doctor or kissy yeah, face or whatever that's not considered abuse that's normal developmental stuff right i think every probably every kid some played doctor sometime or in their past dipping yeah i think like i said when it becomes considered abuse is if you've got like i mean it depends on i don't know like all your different state laws but in canada depending on the child it's either two years difference or five years difference for age of consent right so you know uh, you know, under a certain age, children just simply can't consent to sexual activity, period, right? You know, the hard part is, I don't know if it's this way in Canada, but the United States, every state is different. Mm -hmm. The age of, some some are the age of consent 16, and then others are 18. And there's all these different little rules in each state as to what constitutes, you know, sexual abuse. So mm -hmm. it's, it, it's really horrible there needs to be some national standard at least here in the states where everything is consistent but diana i want to just point out though like like the kind of abuse that we're mostly talking about is not same age siblings typically it's like you know in my book like five out of four of my five out of 14 of my participants were in, were um offended against by a, a bio female in their family right so three three by their mothers like that's clear intent and mm -hmm. you know right clear sexual abuse right um three by or two by older cousins or one by two older cousins sorry that were you know supposed to be babysitting him right yeah the power dynamic um, is definitely one of the one of the rules yeah of, of abuse uh, but you always have that statutory rape thing where okay you got a 17 year old girl and an 18 year old boy and they're dating and yeah that's not quite the same <laughs> the national level i would like to I would like it to be consistent in every state, all the laws regarding child abuse. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would like to happen, at least here in the states, if not in the world, there should not be a statute of limitations for child abuse. We don't it's have like that. murder. You don't have that in Canada? No, no, no. There's wow. no there's statute of limitations on sexual assault in Canada. Wow. Well, it's yep. hats off to Canada. Yeah. Um, that's one appalling thing. It's like many of the people in my groups, they're like, well, I could have, you know, gone public with this, but it was so many years ago that I can't, mm -hmm. he's not going to, he's not going to go to jail for it. He's never going to pay for it. Yeah. So I'm not going to go and report it. That's tragic. It makes me, my question that comes to mind would be like, does that make offenders feel safe to target young children, right? Yes, it does. <laughs> Oh, well, as soon as, you know, this time period passes, then I'm scot-free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, some, some of them, they, the reason why they get caught is they're, they're still 
abusing yeah. children yeah. yeah and they got lazy or made a mistake and somebody reported him recent and so that opened up the whole floodgates of mm -hmm. these other victims yeah and that that is such a good point diana you know when i worked in the behavioral sciences unit the rcmp psychologist had written an affidavit for our like search warrants and it basically said once a pedophile always a pedophile like you know i mean there's no like treatment for these hardcore sex offenders that are like you know the prolific the the preferential sexual molesters right like they can be they can be you know imprisoned and have certain programs that can help them abstain for periods of time but i, I don't think the desire actually goes away right so you know um obviously uh what we know from research is that those that offend against boys are the most prolific in numbers and, and in in level of threat too so that's also something just to keep in mind when we're talking about male victims right is that you know the, the the offenders who target boys usually have a you know like on average 150 victims over their lifetime mm, wow yeah now i know we're, we're talking about a lot of dark things but do you have do you have a story of one of the people that you've worked with or interviewed that had a happy ending that got some healing or a resolution to their abuse? Well, I want to say everyone that I interviewed for my research was getting help to some extent, right? So, and every one of them wanted to participate to, you know, be a voice to encourage other boys and men to have the strength to come forward. Um, um, well, I mean, I mean, basically, you know, I mean, I'll tell you about um, one of the boys in my book, um, his name was Ricky, and he was born deaf. And his mom had significant health issues. Um, she had MS. And so um, dad was obviously very busy supporting mom, you know, so it kind of got missed that he that he was deaf. They knew he didn't wasn't verbal, but they didn't understand that that was because he was deaf. When he went for his kindergarten testing, the the, the assessor dropped a textbook beside his ear and he didn't flinch. So she goes, yeah, you got a deaf son here, you know? And so they got him surgery and he got, he got his hearing after the surgery. And you know, like any boy, he wants to make noise now, right? So he wanted to play drums. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so he got abused by the, by the teenage boy down the street who offered to teach him drums. Um, doesn't really remember a ton about that abuse, but um mom mom continued to kind of go downhill with her ms to the point where she was wheelchair bound so um they were living in new york and in a, you know one of the tall skinny houses so dad moved out to the suburbs and um bought like a, a rancher style house where the wheelchair would be able to access more points in the house and so he stayed living in the family home with his grandma and used to go visit mom and dad in the summers or on weekends or whatever and then mom's, mom's health took an even further decline to the point where dad couldn't handle him even on the weekends in the summer. So sent him off to Italy to, to be with the cousin. And, you know, all of a sudden the cousin starts paying very special attention to him. And he's never had this before, right? So goes camping with him, teaching him, you know, just, you know, how to camp and that kind of stuff. And then abused him in his sleeping bag at night. Um, the first night he kind of just like pretended to be sleeping and hoped it would never happen again. It did happen again and it got more and more aggressive. His cousin shared him with his friends. It got, you know, very aggressive. And he came back to Canada and thought, okay, that's over. I'm never going to let that happen again kind of thing. Then his cousin decided to move to Canada so that he could continue the abuse. So his cousin moved to Canada and lived with another relative oh that lived close. Yeah. 
just brutal. And so he was pretty messed up after that, right? He, when he was about 18, when his cousin started to want to engage in other sexual acts that he, he was really against like anal intercourse, he, um, he put a stop to it. He said, no, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow this to happen. And so he put a stop to it, but you know, he yeah. described that. Yeah. He went on to marry an abusive woman the first time around and, you know, so his story didn't really have a happy ending until he kind of realized, you know, until he kind of came to terms with the fact that he was a victim and how much it impacted him and he got help and whatnot. And I mean, he's in a much healthier place now. Um, and, you know, like I say, he, he, he wanted to come tell me a story. He was somebody I met years prior and I'd taken his business card and he'd said, oh, if you ever do research in this, you come let me know. I, I think he drove three hours to where I was to come tell me his story. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you know, actually, he just emailed me yesterday to say, hey, how's it going? You know? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. But, I mean, to... It doesn't mean that everything's awesome. It just means he's doing better. Right. You know, and that he sees things clearly and he, he doesn't, he doesn't subject himself to bad situations anymore the way he used to. Right. So. Yeah. We're trying to offer our, our survivors hope. Um, and I tell, I tell my groups that healing is a journey Oh, yeah. And I'm uh, farther along in my journey than maybe somebody else's. But each each day is a new day. And God finds finds you precious and valuable. And absolutely. absolutely. And he'll use what was your misery to be your ministry. Yes. If you want, you know. Because the more men that come out and tell their story, like in your book, the more that other people are going to be encouraged. Absolutely. They're going to come out. out right? Yeah. They're going to be encouraged that if if they were able to heal from this, then I can too. Now, again, it's, it's not. It doesn't happen overnight. It's it's step by step, and and choosing to move forward and keep going to therapy and keep, um, you know, being around other survivors and reading good books like Dr. Palfi's book here. And but there there is help. A lot more help now than there was when when I was a kid. Even uh, my other abuser was my ex-husband, and even when I left him, there there weren't this, the resources that they have now, mm -hmm. which is encouraging. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have any uh, other books coming down the pipeline that you want to tell us about? Sure. Um, there's a treatment facility here in my community called Little Warriors, and myself and the director of that agency are in the process of writing a children's book series. So, um, you know, how to educate children. And, and this is never to say that children should be put in the place of having to protect themselves. But let's be realistic in today's day and age. You know, it's just so necessary to educate children. Um, so, uh, but how do you have those tough conversations with kids? So we are writing three storybooks that you can actually just read to kids. And, and there's other ones out there like that too, obviously, but we're, we're doing one on uh, a story of a boy being abused and telling his father and being supported. And then uh, another story of a girl going to therapy and the therapy dog and the therapist and stuff like that and how it helped her get regulated and stuff again. And then a third one about human trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing I've been trained in human trafficking too and I mean this all has a curriculum just for sex traffic victims and that's that's even more disgusting and and dark than than you can possibly imagine yeah. um so those are all going to be written by you or are you going to have other people well, myself and dr Poulton are writing them together 
you're writing them together. And when do you think they're going to be available? Well, we're done two of them now. They're just finishing the final um, graphics and then we've got to just upload them to the distribution agency and then they'll be good. And then the third one, we're just finishing writing and we still got to get graphics for. Mm. That sounds perfect. Um, I don't personally know of books for children that specifically address, directly address abuse. They have, you know, good touch, bad touch, but that's pretty much the extent that I'm aware of. Yeah. So this, this will be phenomenal to get those, those kind of books out yeah. into circulation uh, mm -hmm. for our kids. I don't have any children myself. My my husband has grown children, um, but just to be able to have those to give to a kid that you love and yeah. your grandchildren. Teach them uh, how to be safe and not to be afraid to come forward if something happens. And yeah, because there's so many taboos and stuff, you know, children are taught not to talk about sex in so many households, right? But honestly, we have to change that. We have to we have to put it on the table as a topic of discussion to keep our children safe. Yeah, especially in the, the Christian environment, the churches are probably a little to blame for that because, you know, you're not allowed to um, talk about sex and they got the purity culture where you don't date except in a group. And they say that, you know, you shouldn't kiss or hold hands until you're married. And I came from a pretty, <laughs> pretty st strict church environment and so the only sex that they get is okay when they're engaged and it's two weeks before the wedding and they have their premarital counseling and then okay Can't then they have all this can of worms that that they have to deal with and the wedding night and all this other jazz and so nobody talked about sex if you came from a christian home fortunately um i didn't start going to a um evangelical church till i was well, I wasn't saved till I was 13, but started going to an evangelical church when I was 18 and got baptized. But I went to the library and got books on my own on stuff. You know, I was kind of a, a bookworm. And my my parents gave me gave me books on stuff like, you know, the birds and the bees books. But we didn't have too many conversations about, except that, you know, your body is beautiful and it's holy and, and only somebody that you're married to should be looking at your, your body. And I used to use the F word because the girl next door used to uh, use it profusely. So I'm like a fifth grader using the F word and my dad <laughs> sit me down and said, no, no, it's not the F word. It's, it's making love now. Wow. <laughs> need to have a chat here. We don't talk like that in the house, but um, yeah. yeah, we needed, we need more resources to talk and bring up the conversation. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing as we've had, we've uh, mentioned that to talk about these things, but we have to. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the book is, it's not, they're not going to be highly graphic, obviously, but they're, you know, graphic enough that you get the gist of what happens and, and, you know, that, you know, the boy says no and, he comes home and tells his dad and the bad guy gets arrested, right? So, and, and of course, in each one of our books, there's a puppy dog involved, so. Oh, bonus. <laughs> That'll be the spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, I'm a super duper animal lover. Okay. This has just been incredible conversation and I'm halfway through the book. It is mm -hmm. such a, a great resource. I learned a lot 
just reading through the book, new things. And everybody needs to go out there and get this book. So how can the listeners connect with you and get your book? Uh, well, my book, uh, you know, you can go through my website. Uh, it's hopefully going live today, kellypalfy.ca. Um, otherwise, my book is in Chapters, Indigo, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. It's on Audible, digital, <laughs> lots of different ways to get it. So, uh, yeah, but Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse is the title. So Google it and you can find it, hopefully. But, uh, yeah, that's really nice to hear from a, from a female survivor that you say you learn things. Because that, that was sort of my intention, Diana, was to, like, help victims understand and make sense of their past, like what's happened and kind of to try and put words to what they've experienced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Give them language, you know? Yes. And teach well, people, teach the others that still don't believe male, males are able to be abused. Like give them examples of how it happens if that's what you need to believe it, right? Well, as we said, uh, it only takes one person to, to start a change, to make a change. So why not it be us, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I am so glad to know you and you are doing great work out there. So I definitely want to know when those three books are released, have you back on the show and okay. promote those books. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Diana. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Wow. That was a great interview. Great lady. I'm so appreciative of Dr. Palfi. And I know that you'll be too. I want to give a copy of this book to uh, to one of you who's listening. So I'm just going to do another giveaway just like I did with um, The Great Sex Rescue, Sheila Gregor's book. So the same thing. If you want to be entered into the drawing for this book, I would like you to share the podcast interview on social media. And I want you to comment on what your takeaway was during this episode it could be you know something that you didn't know before or something that was a real blessing to you or maybe encouraged you to come forward with with your experience or you know to help somebody else whatever it is whatever takeaway that you got share that with me if you're not on social media um you can go on the youtube channel Put a comment on the YouTube channel on this episode. Also, if you don't want to do YouTube, you can sign up for my email list. I do not send out very many emails, but if you sign up for my email list, um, you can be entered in to the drawing as well. I really would like this book to get into the hands of a guy who needs it. And maybe you're um, a female listening that knows somebody that needs this book. Share this episode with them. You know, maybe they might be embarrassed to receive a book, but maybe say, hey, there's this great podcast that you need to listen to. Send them over to Dr. Palfi's. Send them over to my podcast and say, hey, this, this, person, this person is a safe individual, trustworthy. And yes, uh, the last few guests have been really dark. I'm sorry. But this is necessary conversation. It is so important to get the information and the resources out there for you. And yes, it's uncomfortable. But when we come out on the other side, like we were saying, there's hope, there's healing, and you can get help. So I will put all of this in the show notes for you. All of 
the doctor's information and mine and we will we will definitely be drawing the names for the giveaway in two weeks so that gives you time to get your responses in um, so stay tuned to be notified in two weeks whether you've won the drawing for the book so or so we're going to change up my tagline a little bit here since I like to rotate that around a bit. So my thoughts to you today are we are no longer victims. We are victorious. So we'll see you next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.